If talking about new travel destinations or discovering the latest travel gadgets gets your heart racing just like mine, well then, you are in the right place. Hello there, I'm Katrina Rountree and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Come, our podcast about the wonders of travel, a place where we share memories from recent trips and we dream about upcoming adventures. So get your passports ready and join me for Journeys to Come. This week we are chatting to some of the legends of Australia's travel industry. Joining me to share their stories from cruise ships to luxury resorts are Anne Peacock from the glitzy and glamorous Crown Resorts, Glenn Maroney, the founder of Scenic, Nikki Oatley, part of the Dynamic family who own Hamilton Island, Anne Sherry from Carnival Australia who joins us from the Queen Mary, Tony Wheeler, the co-creator of Lonely Planet. When I was thinking about truly glamorous places that I, uh, I've experienced or heard of or sampled or read about, what I wanted for Australia, I had to pick one. I had to pick Crown because whether it's, it's the Logies or uh, a, a whole variation of, um, of events that take place in this magnificent hotel, I really think that Crown is up there as our most glamorous, truly glamorous hotel in Australia. And I know someone that would absolutely agree with me is is Anne Peacock, who is uh, the General Manager of Community and Charity with, with, with Crown Limited, and she is just our go-to girl for Crown. How are you, Anne? I'm better for speaking to you. Thank you, my darling. And what a, what a welcome that just was. Well, would you agree with me that, that in Australia, Crown really is the it spot for glamour, isn't it? Well, the wonderful thing about Crown is that we, we have something to offer everyone. It is a world-class integrated resort, and I'm talking specifically about Melbourne at the moment, um, with three stunning hotels, um, Crown Towers, Crown Metropole, and Crown Promenade Hotel, um, 45 restaurants and bars and premium restaurants such as Neil Perry's Rock Pool, Spice Temple, and Rosetta. Uh, David Thompson has now got Long Chim here. We have... Uh, uh, Atlantic, Nobu, there is a realm and dinner by uh, Heston Blumenthal. There is a whole range of premium, luxurious locations to, to visit here at Crown. Um, but then there's also the great fun, casual and stunning places like the Merrywell for great laughs and terrific bars. So there really is something for everyone. You were talking before about the uh, Logies and yeah. other glamorous events like the Brownlow. It just seems like, fortunately, we are the home for those major events. If they're happening in Australia, they're happening here. Why do you think that is, though, Anne? How can you sort of explain that to people? I'm, I'm sure there there must be people who wonder why on earth is that the location that, that all of those events take place at? How do you explain um, why people choose Crown for that? Well, I've, I, I'm not being biased here, but there are awards and awards for our food and beverage event department. They really are the very best in Australia. The service level the standard of the food in the Palladium. And so whether that's, that's 2,300 people or 300 guests is absolutely world-class. Hot meals, always on the table, delicious. So incredible service. Guaranteed, absolutely incredible service, delicious food and wine. And um, then there's so many options of where to go afterwards. Mm. There's something for everyone. 
whether it be um, at the most glamorous villa at Crown Towers or with the family in the pool on the level 27 down at um, Metropole is absolutely stunning. Yeah, my children absolutely love that. I, I know something that we did these holidays is we just went for one night. We just it, we just thought, why not? Let's just, for, for us, my boys absolutely love the pool at the Metropole. But but we are trying to we're, we're trying to stick to to glamour for for today's show. So can you allow us to dream a little bit about <laughs> that penthouse that you mentioned? Because most people. Most people actually would not even know it existed. But but share a little bit about that world. Well, we have villas. So from level 30 onwards, um, there are some stunning rooms. Um, they're some of the best rooms in the world for hotel standards. Um, and with the 24-hour butler um, service from any one of those premium restaurants that we were talking about before, private shopping, if that's what you want to do at Louis Vuitton, Burberry, Prada. It passed. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just drooling as you're talking. We have Graf here now. We have Monards. We have Rolex. The world's most premium brands are here in Crown Towers location and the Crown Towers retail strip. Well, it's been incredible chatting to you today. Just and before I go. Yeah, yeah. Just before I go, we have to talk just for one minute about Crown Perth and Crown Towers that opened in December. Share the story. Um, the, the, now this, if you think Crown Towers Melbourne is Australia's most luxurious hotel, I have to tell you there is one better and that's Crown Towers in Perth. As I said, just recently opened, it's got 500 rooms, the most incredible spa the pool is to absolutely die for. The villas at the same level that Crown Towers Melbourne has, and there are great offers on these incredible rooms at Crown Towers, as I said, just opened in December. Australia's most luxurious hotel. You are so good. You are so good at what you do. That's why you are the best. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Travel is often best shared with friends and family. So please share this podcast with your travel companions and make sure you subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you collect your podcasts. Well, Scenic has become synonymous with luxury cruises right around the world. They encapsulate our true sense of wonder and adventure. But something that we are very, very proud of is Scenic actually started as a humble coach tour company founded by the amazing Glen Moroney in 1986, 30 years on, and the company is world famous, but still incredibly proud of their Australian origins and the fact that they are family owned. So to talk us through how it all started and where it's heading as well, we have the founder of Scenic with us right now, Glenn Moroney, who's calling us from Shanghai. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Very well, very well. It's a beautiful day here in Shanghai as well, so all's good. We're very so, proud of everything that, that has, has happened along the journey of, of Scenic, but particularly the fact it's still family-owned and, and the fact it started it in such a humble way. Can you share with us how, how the company actually began? Um, well, it is just over 30 years ago, and uh, I had very little to do at the time, and my father saw me lying around on the couch and said, Glenn, we've got a a motel down in Warrnambool, uh, which, uh, along the Great Ocean Road in Victoria, as you know. Down at the ball. And uh, it's empty. It has no... Yes, yeah. Uh, 
it's empty and has no business and uh, we'd like you to go and see what you can do. So uh, that was the start. Um, and uh, we went on from there. We know that the company is now huge around the world, but you are now involved in creating the ships that we get to enjoy the finished product of. How challenging is it to, to build a ship? Where does the idea all begin? Um, I think it begins with the guest, um, you know, and, and what we think that we can do that's different. Um, you know, with our river cruises, we went to Europe and uh, we told the shipyards and, and various other designers that we wanted to do something completely different. And we wanted a larger ship, bigger cabins, uh, larger public spaces, single dining, you know, butler service and all these other things. Mm. And uh, initially, uh, they laughed at us and said, well, what do you want to do that for? Uh, and it took some time before we brought them round to our way of thinking. Because in those days, everybody did the same and there was no need to change. Um, so, you know, it starts with the concept of what you want to deliver as a product uh, mm. for the customer and where you think that you can do something that's different. Um, and then becomes the, the difficulty of designing and pricing it and going to engineering and all the rest of it. But um, as it should be with all travel-related products, it starts with a requirement for the guest and an experience that you want to deliver uh, that's the start, and then you build the elements from there. Glenn, a little while ago, I went on a, a beautiful trip along the Douro Valley in Portugal. But I, yeah. I, I went right at the beginning of the journey as you were just creating, literally creating the docks, the ships. And I got a little bit of an yeah. insight as to how... How challenging, how difficult it is to go into a new area. And, and in a way, I think many of us take for granted um, the amount of work that is required predominantly by you to go into a new area to take us on these adventures. How, how difficult is that to, to be at the forefront and to, and to go into these new places? Oh, that one was very, very difficult. Um, uh, <laughs> it's cost us a huge amount in legal fees. Uh, we've even had members of staff uh, have large gentlemen follow them to their cars of an evening and mm. tell them that they should probably lose it. We've had some very, very silly things happen there because it was basically a monopoly uh, by an operator there and uh, everybody believes that nobody else uh, could start and we were told that that would never happen and that, yes, we might build the ship but we'd never be able to get a dock and many other things. And uh, we've, uh, in that case had to spend uh, a lot with lawyers, um, a lot of legal cases, a lot of court cases. It's literally, unfortunately, cost me millions um, mm -hmm. just in the legal cases to set up there. Um, every single possible avenue, by fair means or foul, to stop us starting mm -hmm. um, was thrown at us. And it's amazing to think that that could happen in a Western European country. But um, yes, it still does, particularly when people are very well connected uh, with the local politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are now operating and our second ship starts operating this April. Um, and, you know, we decided after meeting uh, the gentleman in question that uh, the only way that we were going to operate there was to either do it ourselves so that we could deliver the standard that we wanted for our guests um, or we would never operate at all. And yeah. uh, uh, doing it ourselves has been quite difficult and expensive, but ultimately I think it will be worthwhile. And our guests are certainly uh, telling us that's the case. Uh, the first season was very successful and mm. uh, we think this next season will be even more successful. I suppose what I should ask you is, what's got you excited about 
the future of Sydney. What other journeys are you are you um, getting excited about right now? You know, I think it's the same thing that I got excited about when I flew down to Warrnambool. I'd, I'd really, at that age, only travelled around New South Wales. And, you know, when I landed in Melbourne and was driven along the Great Ocean Road, I saw a completely different part of Australia. You know, the grass was a lot greener and a lot mm. lusher, and uh, I actually saw somebody taking me to New Zealand, <laughs> you know, and uh, the 12 bottle or what was left of them then. Yeah. Um, and that whole coastline and everything else was something I'd never experienced. And, you know, the opportunity for the future with us with the clips and, um, you know, now our ships into Asia and, yes, the Duro and other things that we're looking at in the future. Now, it's all about that, that new sense of wonder of being somewhere that you haven't been before. I mean, in the last three days, I've spent a lot of time um, outside Shanghai, around the countryside here. And, you know, some of the experiences when you get into the ancient water villages and the gardens, uh, you know, every time it opens your eyes and say, wow, this is new. Um, this is exciting. It's something I haven't experienced before. And, you know, those experiences are in many, many places. And certainly when we talk about the polar regions and Greenland, Iceland, Mm. Um, and the other areas that seem to be clipsable, so I mean, absolutely spectacular. Adding the helicopter and the submarine will give people a, an opportunity to experience something that very few others have. And that, that I find exceptionally exciting. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of time with us. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for uh, experiencing it with us for so long. It's been fantastic uh, watching the product of your work too. Oh, thank you, Glenn. Well, look, good luck with your journey. I'll let you go and we'll speak to you soon. I'm excited for Shanghai and China. Want more travel in your day? Well then, join us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Journeys to Come and follow us. And while you're there, hey, how about you share your own travel pics and stories with the hashtag Journeys to Come. Hello, Nikki. Welcome. I'm just wondering, you, you're living the dream. Your family actually bought their own island. How on earth did that occur? Great question. Um, it certainly wasn't planned. So um, basically back in 2003, um, the family were up here racing um, their yacht, Wild Oats. Uh, and funnily enough, they won the regatta and my grandfather got very, very excited. Um, and at that stage, the island was in receivership and the management at the time came over um, to Popeye and, and said, look, Mr Oatley, we might not be here next year. Um, do you have any interest in, in purchasing Hamilton? And my grandfather's always had an amazing passion for, for Hamilton Island. He actually sailed past here in the 80s and always, you know, admired what, you know, the developer at the time, Keith Williams, had done to the place. And um, he came back with and got the guys to run the financials on it and we all thought, you know, it's never going to happen. And then within a week, um, we'd put in our bid to own the island and we had an island. <laughs> when you go along Front Street where all the, the yachts and the boats and the tourists congregate together. It still has a village feel, even though it is so popular and so successful. Is that a goal of yours, to, to keep that atmosphere friendly? Yeah, absolutely. Like, Hamilton Island has always been about, um, about families and, you know, we have a number of residents that are up here um, and the variety is varieties of families um, and that's one of the most unique parts about Hamilton Island it is a resort but it does have 
you know, over, I think we've got 1,200 full-time residents up here and they call, call this home. Mm. But then you've also got, you know, people that are coming up here with their families year after year. Um, and it just changes the dynamic of the whole place. Like when you've got people who have bought into Hamilton Island and treated as their home, not just guests that are up here having a wonderful time, it's, it's a very, very different dynamic and I think it's beautiful. You've been coming up here all your life. When you're here, are there, are there favourite spots that you like to go to? Is there a certain beach or are there certain memories that have been made here for you that you treasure? Absolutely. We, as a family, first came up here. It must have been, you know, when Lyndall and I were f- maybe four and eight or something like that. And I remember playing on Cat's Eye Beach and, and we just had a ball. At that stage, you know, we part of the SeaWorld part. There were dolphins in, in that main resort pool, which, of course, would never happen today. But, you know, you, you're creating these amazing, amazing memories. And when we bought Hamilton Island, obviously it, it changed the way I perceived Hamilton Island and it became my job. And I, I, you know, I'm in charge of, I guess, making memories or curating memories for our guests and owners up here now. And, and that's part of why we're up here this week with the Australian Ballet. Um, we're creating a bespoke experience for our qualia guests with the best Australian talent in the world, or best, best mm. Australian talent. And um, so for, for me, there is no one special place. It's more about each time coming up here and having a different experience. And whether I'm staying up here at Qualia, um, you know, which won Best Resort in the World back in 2012, it's, you know, it's beautiful. Or you can go and stay in a little palm bungalow um, down in the, in the tropical gardens, down by Cat's Eye. It's very, very different. Um, and it's an island for every Australian. And I suppose I saw that last night. I raced my family at sunset up to One Tree Hill. And I was like, quick, 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 let's go and see the sunset at One Tree Hill. And I was overwhelmed. It was like Pitt Street. There were so (laughs) many people there. There were children, there were grandparents. It was selfie heaven. People were having $10 cocktails. Does that just make you feel so proud to see the success of the island today? Yeah, it's incredible. Like the Whitsunday region, you know, it's unbeatable. Like when it's in, you know, our own backyard, you know, we've always, you know, people wanted to go to Europe or America and you come up to the Whitsundays or Hamilton Island and it is just breathtaking. It is unbelievable. The water is, you know, you know, on par with the Caribbean or, you know, we've spent a lot of time mm. in Italy and the Mediterranean and enjoying that. Hamilton Island is you know, it is becoming that iconic Australian destination now. And that's, that's something Mike was my grandfather's vision. And I'm so glad that, you know, we can deliver on that. But yeah. Nikki Oatley, thank you for your time. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Don't forget, if you have any questions that you may like to ask me in regards to travel or anything at all for that matter, feel free, fire away. And are you on board right now? I am on board right now, and it is fabulous. Oh, oh. Firstly, hello, welcome. Please describe the scene. I am sitting in what's called the boardroom uh, in a very comfortable set of chairs with a fireplace over to my left, gazing out over the harbour bridge and the bridge climbers just setting off. Uh, And to my right is another sort of bar area right at the bow of the ship looking out over 
a, a slightly wet and hazy Sydney, but still gorgeous. It is still beautiful. I went past the Queen Mary this morning, uh, I think from one of the best vantage points across the uh, the Carl Expressway, and, and it, it wasn't the finest weather, but... Boy, the Queen Mary just looks so regal, so beautiful. Even in cloudy weather, it's still just a joy to be on board, isn't it? And she's the Queen of the Seas. And when you see her in Sydney, you just realise how what a, a very elegant and gorgeous ship she is, actually. And today, I, I want to salute the icons of travel. And, and of course, we, we, we salute the Queen Mary, but I would also like to salute you because I know that, that you have an extraordinary story. The girl from Gympie, uh, who was <laughs> once a social worker, who has gone on to be the CEO of the Australian arm of the world's largest cruise ship business. And... I, this is a big question, but my word, what is the secret of your success? <laughs> well, maybe uh, it's... Oh, who knows? Who, who knows? knows? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't think there's any great silver bullet. Some of it's about being at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Some of it's about being, you know, just um, being ambitious for what you do uh, and the seeing the opportunity, which is really the story of cruise in Australia, yes. and some of it probably, I think when you grow up in the country, you you operate in a fairly, uh, without much boundary, you know, and you, you don't actually learn fear, and maybe that actually has helped me over the years as well, because nothing seems too hard. Unbelievable um, even, resilience. <laughs> even though that's a bit stupid some, when you think of some of the things I've done, but yes, it's, um, I think you do learn resilience, and you know, it's a great quality and the incredibly changing times I've lived through and also the ambivalence uh, and um, the just the uncertainty that we're living in at the moment as well. What's it like being the CEO of the Australian Arm of Carnival? <laughs> Brilliant. Fun? <laughs> Is it fun? It's, look, it's had its moments. Sometimes <laughs> there have been days when it's been the best job in the world yeah, yeah. and I've had a few days when it was probably the worst job in the world but by and large and overwhelmingly it has been absolutely fantastic. How do you explain Aussie's obsession with cruising? Well, uh, I think we all live on the... Most of us live on the sea for a start. Mm. So the idea of taking to the sea doesn't seem such a big stretch for many of us. We look at it. Uh, we, you know, we sail lots of small craft. We swim. So I think that's one piece of it. We're also surrounded amazing places that are pretty hard to get to any other way mm. and so uh, you know whether it's close or far away whether it's Kangaroo Island or Morton Island off Brisbane or out to the Pacific and the Solomon Islands they're not easy places to get to and ships take people to those places and make it feel easy to get there so I think that's the other thing and then the third thing is actually it's a great way to holiday and for lots of women in particular Yes. who are over having that holiday where everyone turns up at your place and you're the kitchen and galley slave yes, very for the true. entire family for the holidays. Actually taking everyone out on the ship means you get a holiday as well. So I think there are lots of different... depends where you are and who you are in that spectrum, but I think there are lots of different reasons that the- people have taken to the sea. Look, I think Coonhart um, have been coming to Australia for 90 years. Right. So I think there's a a piece of history with that. I think also the Cunard ships were uh, were used in various world wars as actual, you know, they're converted to being 
um, British Navy ships if they need to. So there's lots of people who have that connection. But I think there's something just about the elegance. And they're not the biggest ships in the world anymore, but they certainly are the most elegant. There's a style, design, history feel that all of us are laden with history, you know, mm. that all of us just go... Gee, a transatlantic crossing is like one of those things that uh, everybody reads about and thinks about and just imagine doing that on a Cunard ship. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've got to ask, with so many different journeys on offer with all that, that Carnival does, which one are you most excited about taking next? <laughs> well, actually, the next one I'm doing, I'm going to sail out of Cairns yeah. up to Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. Oh, and the reason I'm going to do that is it's a part of the world that I am really interested in from a sort of historic and anthropological point of view. It's, it's almost impossible to get there any other way. And uh, I'm going to fly to Cairns and sail out of Cairns and I can do it in a week. So it's, um, it's not so difficult to do that I've got to spend, you know, three months cruising, which is what I'd, of course, love to be doing but can't. So I'm going to do that because I, I want to sail into Gizo mm -hmm. in eastern Solomon Islands, which I hear has some of the best snorkeling and diving in the world, yes. and I can't get there any other way. So I'm off. Travel is often best shared with friends and family. So please share this podcast with your travel companions and make sure you subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you collect your podcasts. Tony... Well, I, I was telling uh, Tony a story when he came into the studio just a moment ago that whenever I, I leave um, this studio, I love to go to a big bookstore. And I went in last week and I said, can you just tell me where the um, where the uh, travel books are? And I went over and there was a Lonely Planet section that was so huge. It was like a store within the store. So tell us, how does it feel to, to now be at the helm with what can only be described as an empire and it all started what, back in 1973? It did indeed. The very first book we did out of Sydney in 73. And and it grew from that single book done on a kitchen table in a basement flat in Sydney to eventually more than 500 books and I think about 500 staff. But of course, I'm not at the helm anymore because Maureen and I sold out a few years ago. But I am never going to go into a bookshop and see all those Lonely Planet guides and think, yeah. I did that. Well, with that first book, what was it like? What was it like actually putting that first book together? What inspired that? Why did you guys go, we've got to get, get pen to paper and jot this all down? Well, we, we did a trip back in 72, the year before Lonely Planet started. Maureen and I were living in London at the time, and we bought an old car, and we thought, well, just get in this car, and we'll drive it as far east as it goes. And then at some point we'll get out of it and we'll carry on and maybe we'll end up in Australia. And that car actually took us all the way to Afghanistan. We drove from London to Afghanistan where we sold it for a $5 profit. <laughs> so it was, a, it was the right sort of car, yeah. I'm proud of you. And we got to Sydney and thought, hey, someone should do a book about this. And that, that was the start of Lonely Planet. I, I have to ask you the world's most annoying question. 
have you got a favourite location? You know, the, the, the country I've been back to probably more than any others, apart from just, you know, going to the States, because you have to go to the States every year for some reason, is Nepal. And it's mm. because the walking, you, you know, you, you go there, you walk up to the Everest base camp, you walk around the Annapurna Mountains, you walk up to the border with Tibet. You know, it's, it is if you love walking, and I do, it is the place in the world for walking. Now, today I wanted to focus on cruising, and I think that you have a soft spot for the narrow boats. Is that right? Uh, the, these are the, we, we look at them, we say sometimes barges, but the narrow boat enthusiast, and it's in England, you know, will say, no, wait a minute, barges are what you carry coal in, and nor is it a long boat. Long boat's what carries Vikings. You know, when the Vikings are going <laughs> out pillaging and raping, they're in, a, they're in a long boat. A narrow boat is one that can go through these narrow canal locks. I actually love them for holidays. I've been on a couple of them. I know that they're very popular in France and, and you know, as we're chatting about, we're, they're very popular uh, in the UK as well. Have, have you had a holiday on one? Yeah, I have. And, I, you know, I haven't done the French ones. And the French ones are a bit wider and a little bit more luxurious. And generally somebody else pilots it for you. But the narrow boats in Britain, they give you a 10-minute course on how to do it. And then they say, off you go and do it. And I've done it with a bunch of friends, which is really good. But even better than that is doing it with kids. Because the kids, you know, you, you say, OK, you lot get out and you've got to run the half mile down the canal side. And we want to have we want you to have the lock set up before we get there. So we haven't got to stop and tie the boat up and set the lock up and take the boat into the lock. Well, kids think this is fantastic. Yeah. You know, they've got a job to do. They're working this Victorian engineering. It's a it's a it's a great holiday. Now, I mentioned at the start of the show that you are straight off the plane from from London. From uh, London. Yeah. A 24-hour flight. Uh, excuse me, you didn't shave for me. Thanks a lot. No, I'm sorry. I didn't manage that. <laughs> do you still love your travel? I absolutely do. You know, you give me an airline ticket and people have said to me sometimes, you know, where do you love to go? And I say, I love to go to the departure lounge. Because, you know, then you know you're going somewhere. You, you're you not quite sure where, but it's it's always the planes are sitting there and they're heading off in all directions. Fantastic. Yeah, just, see, just seeing it all happening. And, you know, and there's excitement and there's sadness. People are leaving their family yeah. and going somewhere else and, you know, all sorts of things. But there is that feeling that you're... You're going somewhere. It's going to be interesting. So it's clearly in your DNA. You absolutely yeah. adore your travel. And you mentioned that that you and Maureen have now, um, do I say, sold out of of yeah, Lonely Planet? Yeah. Is that fair to say? But you still, you're still on the road. You're still passionate. I was just wondering when I was looking at at all of those Lonely Planet books, the many, many Lonely Planet books in in uh, in the bookstore last week. Is there one that, that you're particularly proud of? Is there a particular Lonely Planet guide that was an, should I say, utter nightmare to put together? Or I mean, I, I personally love the Pakistan one, if I can oh, say good. that. Oh, good, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one to love because that's a difficult country to travel in. Mm. Um, you know, with, I know they haven't done a new edition in a few years, but only about three or four years ago, Maureen and I did a Pakistan trip up the Karakoram Highway into China, and it was a fantastic trip. We had a really good time. We met great people and really enjoyed it because we met no other tourists because all the tourists have been scared away but the if world... i had one book that i was to say you know was the, the the lonely planet title for me it would be india for two for a number of reasons one was when we did it lonely planet was still really a small company we only had about less than 10 employees and then we were, suddenly we were doing this 
big book. And it was almost like we bet the company on the one book because it was much bigger than any book we'd done before. It cost us far more to do. And then it came out and, you know, it was just a it was a huge success instantly. People people loved the book. It sold like hotcakes. And you know, it was just a great thing to do. And I think people really like the book. They appreciate how much work went mm. into it and how many doors it opens for you. Mm. And I, I'm still a regular visitor to India. It's a bit like Australia with more people. Mm. You know, it's a big country. So you never get tired of it. You always find some other place you haven't been. I was there last year. I went to a couple of places I'd never been to before and really enjoyed them. And I had the book in my hand. It was showing me around. For many people to be a Lonely Planet travel writer is their dream gig. Now, you started out as that, essentially. What's it take to be a Lonely Planet writer? You've got to have an endless curiosity. You've always got to want to see what's around the next corner. You've got to have endurance. You know, we it, it it's one of those jobs that sounds like it's fabulous, but you're working a seven day week and you've got to be up at dawn to see the market open and you've got to be there at midnight to see how the nightclubs are going. So you, you've really got to you've got to do everything. And it, it's definitely hard on people who've got relationships. You know, you're saying to your your wife or partner that, you know, I'm I'm off now and I'll see you in two months time and then I won't see you because I'll be with my head down over the laptop typing the down thing up so there's uh, there's a you know it's hard work mm. but I, I know so many of our writers and, and me too we love doing it I the whole time I was r- working as a writer on LP and I it was one of the parts I really liked about Lonely Planet was working on those books it never got boring you know if, if I had to pay to have that job I would have said okay how much do I have to pay yeah do you still write do you know I I, I still write it I'm actually working on five different books at the oh, moment oh is that all right yeah, well, some of them is just a <laughs> chapter here or a forward there or something but I'm actually doing a book for the um, National Library in Canberra we're doing a book on the islands of Australia how many are there 8,000 we have eight, we have more islands around Australia than they've got in the Caribbean Sea it's astonishing thank you thank so you. much Tony Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Journeys to Come. If you want any more information on the places that we visited, all the people we spoke to, then visit our website, journeystocome.com, for full details.